0: Uh, My talk is fairly wide-ranging, but I hope I've left plenty of time for discussion at the end. Um, I like to finish things at the last moment, and some of you will have a draft that's been circulated. Uh, It bears quite a bit of relationship to the draft that I'm going to read, um, but it's not identical. Um, Now, it's difficult to uh, stay awake with papers at 6 p.m. after a a long day of serious work, Uh, so hopefully I will say something sufficiently annoying uh, that by the end uh, people will feel re-energised. So, is Nicene Trinitarianism in the scriptures? My title poses a blunt question, one that is full of ambiguity, but this is just the sort of question that my students are apt to pose when they study the emergence of classical doctrinal formulae, and I emphasize that the controversies that gave them birth are deeply exegetical. The crux of any plausible answer to the question is the bridge that one must construct between the language of the New Testament, where a clear statement of the nature of the Godhead is absent, and the language of later Nicene Trinitarian formulation. My own attempt at spanning what to modernize easily seems a significant gap, we'll begin by critiquing another attempt, one that might initially seem to offer all that we need. As I do so, it will be clear that I am focused on the text of the New Testament, but as I begin to set out my answer, I will at least hint at how we might also extend this argument to cover Israel's scriptures. In the first few years of my teaching career, David Yego's short essay, the New Testament and the Nicene Dogma, was frequently referenced as an answer to the question of how one might understand the classical formulae of the Christian faith to be fundamentally in accord with that which is revealed in Scripture. The essay offers an approach to the question of my title that appeals to any scholar taken by the post-liberal vision of doctrine as fundamentally regulative or taken by the concept of the plain sense of Scripture as it was articulated by a number of those associated with Yale during the 1970s and 1980s. At the heart of Yego's argument lies a fairly simple principle. In order to understand the relationship between the Church's Trinitarian teaching and the text of the New Testament, we need to look to the judgments that the text renders. Yego writes as follows. The New Testament does not contain a formally articulated doctrine of God of the same kind as the later Nicene dogma. What it does contain is a pattern of implicit and explicit judgments concerning the God of Israel and his relationship to the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. Thus, for Jaego, Philippians 2.9 tells us that God has bestowed on Christ the name which is above every name, and this must be the name of the Lord. We read this text in the light of Philippian, Philippians uh, 1, 10 to 11's insistence that every knee should bend, and we know the latter to be alluding to Isaiah 45, 21 to 24, which insists that in the name of the Lord are saving justice and strength. Hence, the judgment of the text for Yego is that, quote, within the thought world of Israel's scriptures, no stronger affirmation of the bond between the risen Jesus and the God of Israel is possible. Yego goes on to write, It is perfectly consistent with this that the early communities came to speak by preference of the God of Israel as Jesus' father and of Jesus as God's unique son in a relationship definitive for the identity of each. Diego's understanding of the judgments that Scripture delivers is quite expansive and yet precise. He writes The affirmation that this God has so radically identified himself with Jesus can rhyme with Israel's confession of the singularity and incomparability of God if and only if their relationship is eternal. There is only one God, the Lord and relationship to Jesus of Nazareth is somehow intrinsic to this God's identity from everlasting. There is only one God, but the one God is never without his only begotten Son. In this quotation, Yego seems to be arguing that the judgments we can attribute to the text include some second-order logical consequences. Thus, he doesn't point to other key texts, that one might use to argue for the Son's eternity, but presents this belief as a necessary corollary of the text's claim about the supposed identity between the Lord and Christ. Yego is also fairly careful about how he understands the relationship between these judgments and those made by Nicene Trinitarianism. Three conditions, he tells us, must be satisfied before we can say that they are identical First, the logical subjects spoken of in each case must be identical, and here both sects speak of Jesus Christ and the God of Israel. Second, we must ask about the logical type of the particular predicates affirmed or denied within the conceptual idioms they employ. And in this case, both the Philippians' hymn and statements of Nicene faith predicate, quote, of these two subjects, the most intimate possible bond, using the strongest terms available within the conceptual idiom of each. And third, one must ask about the point or the function of these affirmations or denials. And in both cases here, he claims, these statements are articulating principles implicit in Christian proclamation and worship. Before advancing any critique of Yego's argument, we need also to note a key second argument he offers. He strongly criticizes a certain style of historical critical scholarship for identifying conceptualities behind the text and then using those conceptualities to determine a text's meaning. He gives an example from one of the other great from one of the great Durham New Testament scholars, Jimmy Dunn. Dunn argues that behind the language of the Philippians hymn lies the conceptual structure of an Adam Christology, and that, hence, pre-existence, which is not part of this scholarly construct, cannot be read into this text. Yeager makes two strong points about such a reading. The notion of an Adam Christology lying behind the text is a scholarly construct, and to accord it a necessary set of features a priori, and then to use that set as a control for how we can read what Paul actually says would be a dangerously circular argument. At the same time, we best interpret texts by looking at how they use the resources and conceptualities on which they draw, and it would be a mistake to override the judgments in Paul's expressed words because of a belief of what could and could not be said within a particular conceptuality. I'll return to Yego's rather blunt point here in a few minutes. For the moment, we should note that he wisely concedes some place to such historical critical work. Study of the history of conceptualities employed in the texts can provide significant material for comparison so that the distinctive employment of these conceptualities in the rendering of judgments in the biblical texts stands out more sharply. Yego's article, constitutes an imaginative attempt to sever a Gordian knot. In the end, however, the sword proves just too blunt for the task, or the knot too resilient. Most importantly, I think, what Yego identifies as the implicit judgments of the text turn out to be judgments chosen from a range of possible judgments that the texts could quite fairly be taken to offer. Moreover, it took centuries for close readers to identify the judgments of which Yago speaks. And those judgments are simply inseparable from quite complex extra-scriptural resources. Indeed, the best way to see why Yago's argument fails is to take a look at two examples of rather different readers from the 4th century. I want to look first at the discussion of Philippians 29 10 in the first of Athanasius' orations against the Arians. Here, Athanasius opposes a reading which focuses on the force of therefore God has highly exalted him. The status of Christ changes because of his exaltation, these opponents argue. And so we have proof that Christ is mutable. Athanasius' response can only be understood when we see how his previous discussions in this text frame what he says directly about this verse. Thus, before he comes to this text, Athanasius has already discussed the question of whether the Father alone is unbegotten. The term unbegotten, Athanasius argues, can be taken in a a number of ways. Were we to take it as meaning what is not a work but exists always, then it certainly describes the son. If we take it to mean not generated nor having any father, then only the father is such. In any case, the father's word and son is not originated, says Athanasius, but it is an offspring. But even as he offers this judgment, this argument about the nature of unbegottenness, Athanasius references an even earlier account in the text of the word status. And to take just one small but crucial section of that earlier discussion, there Athanasius argues that the Son is the Father's own power. Romans 1.20 speaks of God's eternal power, 1 Corinthians 1.24 speaks of Christ as the power and wisdom of God, but God, the Father, is eternal, Athanasius quotes Isaiah 40.28 to make this clear, and so must the Father's power be eternal. It makes no sense, Athanasius argues, for the Father to be his own eternal power, as his opponents argue when they speak of the Son as an image of the Father's power. It is this eternal power of God through whom all is created and who is seen in the creation, and to see whom is to see the Father, and who must therefore be distinct. Note two things. First, Athanasius argues not by placing the entire weight of his argument on one text, but by interrelating and linking exegesis of a number of different texts and images. Second, this may well be so, because while each of the texts he considers can certainly bear the weight he puts on them, in each case one could fairly suggest that the text also suggests other possibilities. One could easily dispute, for example, the way Athanasius construes the distinction between originated and offspring, between work and offspring, between the different senses of wisdom or power. Returning to the direct discussion of Philippians 2, 9-10, Athanasius begins by defending the principle that the Son is unchangeable. He offers a container of texts in support. Hebrews 13.8, Psalm 102.26, Hebrews 1.12, Malachi 3.6, Psalm 102.26. In particular, Psalm 102.26 in particular identifies the created order as intrinsically changeable while the Lord is not. The Son, being from the Father, must share the Father's unchangeability. Indeed, how are we to understand this unchangeability? Athanasius says, it is not as if the son were an accident in the father's essence, he is from the essence and therefore shares its characteristics. Once again Athanasius' account is certainly defensible from the texts that he uses to establish the son's existence from the father, and together his picture gradually grows in force, but each individual reading is certainly not simply the necessary reading. And thus we come to Philippians 2.9. When the text states that God has exalted the Son, Athanasius insists, not surprisingly, that this refers to his humanity, a position Athanasius supports with another container of texts suggesting that before the Son became incarnate, he was with the Father who delighted in him. The name that Christ has received is that of Son and God, and he can only be true Son if he shares his father's nature and is immutable. Then, quoting the whole of Philippians 2, 5-11, Athanasius simply asserts it as obvious that the Son, being God, descended from on high and became a human being. As we have seen, Athanasius draws, draws from texts conclusions that are certainly plausible, but which are not the only necessary conclusions. He often accomplishes this by adding in interpretive glosses that highlight his own desired meaning. The use of own, as in the father's own wisdom, being a key example. Moreover, we see him taking terms and investing them with a particular force by paralleling them with broader distinctions that he is developing. Being from the father is an excellent example. The term can only bear the weight Athanasius places on it, when it is read as part of his wider assertion of the nature of divine being and the natural consequences of any generation in that context, and in the context of the complete distinction between creating and generating that he draws. We might say that throughout the orations, Athanasius' theology appears through the intersection of two sets of conceptual resources. Those provided by the text of Scripture, such as light and wisdom, and those which reflect his own context, both Christian and non-Christian, such as his assumptions about the distinction between creator and creation, about the nature of eternity, about the implications of father and son language. The logic of the text that Athanasius wishes to draw out, and a variety of broader conceptual building blocks, is complex, and not, I suggest, well grasped by Yego's rather simple distinction. The clearest way of showing that Athanasius is not simply identifying the one possible logic of a text is to look at an alternative. And so allow me to turn for a few moments to another of the great figures of the 4th century, Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius's ecclesiastical theology is a polemic against Marcellus of Ansyra, who taught that the word of God came forth as a distinct entity only for creation. Eusebius presents the faith of the Church in these terms. Quote, the monad is invisible, confessing one source, the one God who is unbegotten and without source, but also confessing the only begotten Son who is born from him, truly existing and living and subsisting as Saviour, though he is neither without source nor unbegotten. Earlier, Eusebius describes the Son as the eternally existing image of God, through whom all things are made. He piles up titles to describe Christ as rock, light, life, and radiance, among others. Amid this account, there is a reading of key elements of the Philippians' hymn. To understand what it means for Christ to be in the form of God, Eusebius says, we must read this title alongside his designation as mediator, referencing Galatians 319 20 and his designation as image, radiance, and sun. He is clearly distinct from the Father, and yet as radiance, he is a unique offspring, not generated as our mortal animals. Now as we know from Deuteronomy 4.35, he tells us there is one God. But the Son of God may also be termed God because of the form of the Father that is in him as in an image. Eusebius thus draws on rather different resonances of key terms, placing emphasis on image and interpreting that as implying the son's secondary possession of the father's form allows him to cast such terms as radiance in a rather different light from that which we find in Athanasius. Insistence on the uniqueness of the divine, understood as God and father, also casts the term son rather differently. In these arguments, Eusebius is unfairly described by the blunt term subordinationist. His intent is to set out the second hypostasis as an eternal, distinct reality who can be described as God, and yet who does not impinge on the unique deity of the one unbegotten. He also relies on investing the term begotten with a unique significance but within a rather different sense of what is and is not possible if God is one. The two thinkers operate with a rather different sense of how one may conceive the grammar of divinity. Athanasius is moving toward an account in which if an entity is God, then a priori, that entity is simply one with the one God and possesses all the attributes of divinity while Eusebius exhibits a more gradated conception of the divine, within which the ontologically lesser entity, the Son or the Word, receives or participates in some of the Father's characteristics in a unique way. There is no one text of Scripture that can a priori decide between these two readings of what it means for the Son to be in the form of God or to possess equality. Both Athanasius and Eusebius were good readers of scriptural texts, adept at constellating texts, drawing them together, and interpreting scriptural metaphors to support their position. They are both adept at investing texts with particular meaning and treating them as hermeneutical keys. They are both adept at drawing out conclusions from the possibilities offered by the plain sense, adept at subtly weaving into their readings of texts, principles that they took to be key markers of the Church's faith and scriptural teaching. Both authors draw on what we can best describe as a field of judgments that scriptural texts offer. While neither author would be willing to recognise that the other was making a fair claim on the possibilities of the text, I think we should. However, recognising that this is so does not mean that the possibility of normative judgment has been taken from us. We can suge- say, I suggest, both that the Nicene dogma offers judgments that are compatible with scriptural discussion of relevant topics, but are certainly warranted and driven by the scriptural text, and we can say that other construals of those texts are possible that do not simply do obvious violence to their phrasing. The possibilities that any individual text offers are shaped both by the words of the text and by the resources of other parallel texts that one might draw in as support. And then the possibilities are limited by a field of other texts whose plain sense presses against many readings one might offer of texts in isolation. Speaking in these terms should offer some sense of how I would face questions concerning the manner in which we set bounds to possible readings. Now, as may be obvious in putting the the matter in these terms, I am also drawing on aspects of the very same school of thought that lies behind Yego's own argument. But interest in the plain sense of the text is here modified in two ways. First, I assume that the way the words run, the circumstantia literae, Often permits a variety of readings. Second, whereas Jago effects a strong separation between the judgments of the text and the conceptual schemes behind it, I would suggest a more complex arrangement in which texts and their interpreters draw on and adapt a variety of, uh, of conceptual resources. There will always, of course, be dispute about what resources we should assume are behind a particular text or interpreter and dispute about how those resources are used. But attending to these questions is an important part of understanding the possibilities of meaning that any text offers or the nature of any reading of texts. Now, if my critique is correct, we are faced with an obvious need. If the necessary link between the readings of Nicene Trinitarianism and the text of the New Testament is severed, to be replaced with a real link, but one that is not the only link possible, then we need to find a way of talking theologically as well as philosophically about the process by which the resources of the text are explored and drawn out into the church's doctrinal formulae. As the first step in this process, allow me to summarise and reflect on an argument that I offered recently in a festschrift for the late John Webster. There I pursued an argument offered by the young Father Joseph Ratzinger in the debates about scripture and tradition that raged just before the Second Vatican Council. At the core of Ratzinger's argument lies the link between the layers of reinterpretation that he sees as structuring the scriptures and the character of the church's dogma as itself an interpretation. Without rehearsing his argument again at length, it is perhaps enough to note the formal parallel he draws between the reading of Israel's history that we find in the earliest texts incorporating into the the New Testament and the re-reading of the very earliest Christian community that we find reported in such later texts as Acts. In the former case, we see both a close reading that finds itself constantly engaged with the imagery that the text offers and the judgments that it has traditionally suggested, and yet a reading that also surprises in its unexpected newness. This newness is, in the first place, a newness because of the action of Christ's Spirit within the community, and in the second place, always a newness in interpretation, It is not a newness that abrogates the centrality of the scriptures. Thus, for example, he gives the example of 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul speaks of the veil over the books of Moses being removed when one turns to the Lord and receives the spirit of the Lord that is freedom. Similarly, in Acts 15, Barnabas and Paul narrate the signs and wonders that God has done, and it is this that prompts James to treat Amos 9 as a warrant for imposing fewer restrictions on Gentile converts. For Ratzinger, this freedom in interpretation that comes from the active presence of Christ is both central to the very structure of Scripture and is shown to us in Scripture as a constant of the Christian community. And so, on this foundation, the young Ratzinger points to the Church's dogmatic tradition as an authoritative interpretation of Scripture driven by the work of the Lord's Spirit in the Church. Now this argument is of considerable use, rather obviously, for my paper. Although it was not Ratzinger's original concern, and he shows little interest there in the malleability of scriptural texts, his account allows us to open a space within which we can understand how the text could have been read multiple ways over time its judgments and imaginative resources explored in a variety of contexts. Thus, while we can investigate how the text may have been heard by those who first encountered it, we may also explore how the text was read in different contexts over the following centuries until dogmatic definition increasingly closely bound the possibilities for appropriate reading. Arguing in this manner is not simply to relativize the meaning of the text for two reasons. First, and as I indicated briefly above, the text itself shapes and bounds possible readings in all sorts of ways. Readings which offer little consonance with the way the words run, or which are easily contradicted by other texts, will not prosper. But second, and essentially, Catholic Christians celebrate the emergence of defined readings as the work of the Spirit. Of course, when I say defined readings, it is rarely the case that we are talking specifically about dogmatically defined readings of specific texts. There are, of course, some examples of this, but more frequently dogmatic definitions articulate positions which have significance for the interpretation of multiple texts. Indeed, one of the functions of dogma, I suggest, is precisely to canonise under the Spirit's aegis particular frames for the reading of Scripture in part and as a whole. Beyond formal acts of dogmatic definition, the Church's long tradition of magisterial teaching similarly frames and guides the reading of texts. This process is, of course, extremely complex. And the magisterial promotion of particular schools of thought or particular models of exegetical competence also pushes exegesis down particular paths and into particular controversies. None of these complex ways in which scriptural exegesis is bounded prevents modern reconstructions of how texts would have been heard by their authors, redactors, or first audiences from exercising a deep influence over our readings today. But it is an understatement to say that there is much more here to be discussed about how we might train theologians to undertake exegesis that puts front and centre the unfolding of interpretation within the life of the Church, as well as the possible meanings of a text at the time of its composition or final editing. At this point, I apologise to our simultaneous translator, but I'd like to add a paragraph to the text. It is also important to note here that as dogmatic formulation provides a frame for interpreting scripture, it is unavoidably also philosophical, in the sense that it almost inevitably involves a speculative act, a setting out of principles that have emerged from the reading of texts, and which will then enable further reading. Theological exegesis, exegesis thus seems to demand much philosophical reflection if the possibilities hidden in scriptural texts are to be drawn out as they should. Indeed, we might also note the almost inevitable differentiation of, diff- of theological tasks that must nevertheless be held together. On the one hand, Christian exegesis pushes toward philosophical and speculative work, while on the other hand, the centrality of the text itself pushes such speculative work back to the text – And to the interruption and refashioning of human speculative reason that the text seems intended to effect. And now I return to my text. If something like this is true, then the core of an answer to the question in my title has emerged. The doctrine of the Trinity is most certainly in the New Testament, but we can only speak about what we mean by in the New Testament on the basis of clarity about the multiple possibilities of the text and the process by which the formed doctrine of the Trinity was discovered therein. The emergence and development of this doctrine may be read as a drawing out by the dual agency of human beings and the divine, of that which lies hidden within the written word. I confess my statement here draws heavily on de Lubac. I'm not going to mention nature and super-nature, so all Dominicans can stay calm de Lubac offers the wonderful aphorism that, quote, everything which remains hidden in the New Testament is still part of the New Testament. Somewhat gnomically, de Lubac then observes, while the historia which made up the ancient scripture, the Old Testament, guided the reader to an allegoria by prefiguring a reality which was other, ulterior and superior, namely the very mystery of Christ which is the New Testament, The mystery of Christ does nothing else but spread forth its own intrinsic dimensions before the eyes of the believer who studies it. For Catholic theologians, it is not only those readings of a text for which a good case can be made that they would have been likely for readers in the late 1st or early 2nd centuries that may be said to be in the text. Readings may be said to be in the Scriptures part of the intrinsic dimensions of the scriptures because plausible cases can be made that they are consonant with the possible judgments of the text and because they seem consonant with the church's faith. Of course, if those readings do not have the force of magisterial definition, then we exist always within the realms of relative plausibility. In many cases, of course, We will deal with readings that have been hallowed by dint of long reflection through the tradition, and we would be wise to think long and hard before we turn aside from them. In other cases, tradition itself offers a plurality of readings that serve only to stimulate more. Modern styles of historical critical exegesis certainly should push us in new directions and cause us to think again about some long-cherished readings but they cannot foreclose on the complex of possibilities that texts still offer to us. Certainty will come only at the end. To understand my answer a little more deeply, allow me to draw attention to another insight of de Lubac's. In a famous essay on the development of doctrine in 1948, he argues against any vision that sees a clearly defined core of faith gradually accruing further definition as we gradually conquer and subdue the mysterious unknown fringe of the undefined. Whether such a picture takes the form of a logical deduction model or a a model of historical unfolding, de Lubac argues that rather, the mystery of Jesus Christ remains always mystery at the heart and center of our faith. Dogma draws only On what he calls the definable fringe of that mystery. We might push this a little further and describe the scriptures as a whole as providing us with the speakable fringe of the mystery. Although my focus has so far been on the texts of the New Testament, these themes from the young Ratzinger and de Lubach, I think, enable us to see how we might apply the same arguments to the scriptures as a whole. Although this is really the subject for another paper, I will offer a couple of sentences. Simply put, if we are right to see Nicene Trinitarian theology as an appropriate drawing out and exploration of that which is revealed to us in the New Testament, and if we are right to see the text of the New Testament as a revealing of that which lies hidden in the text of Israel's scriptures, then we can say nothing other than that in Israel's scriptures we find a field of judgments about the nature of God and a field of metaphorical resources that were not only the resources that our earliest Christian writers drew on and which they transformed, but which are also there for us as resources that we can and should read through the lens of the New Testament and Nicene Trinitarian theology. Understanding the history and transformation of those resources within the history of Israel is an obvious part of understanding the use and transformation of those resources by early Christians and within the later Christian community. But there is a continuum that needs to be ours if we are to move forward fruitfully. Now the picture that I have offered so far is insufficient, insofar as it has concentrated mostly on the path from the readings of the late 1st or early 2nd centuries to the readings possible in the light of formed Trinitarian doctrine. In the last session of the paper, I would like to think in broader terms about the activity of the theologian as scriptural interpreter, using an analogy drawn from perhaps a surprising quarter. This analogy, I hope, will help us to think in a little more depth about the inevitable plurality of interpretation that has been a significant concern throughout my argument. In a lecture entitled On Fairy Stories, first delivered in 1938, J.R.R. R. Tolkien reflects on the act that he terms sub-creation. The writer of fantasy intends the creation of a world with sufficient density, sufficient inner consistency, to convince the reader that the events of the story take place in a world that one might inhabit. See, no need to recur, Tolkien already did it. Without such a sense of reality, I I had to annoy somebody. Without such a sense of reality, the reader will not experience the catching of breath or the lifting of the heart that occurs when ill or good befalls the central characters. And yet, Tolkien argues, quote, every sub creator wishes in some measure to be a real maker or hopes that he is drawing on reality. Indeed, Tolkien writes, When we feel joy at the end of the successful fairy story, this may even be a far-off gleam or echo of Evangelium in the real world. The Gospels contain a fairy story which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They are mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. But this story has entered history and the primary world, the desire and aspiration of sub-creation, has been raised to the fulfilment of creation. The fairy story then hints at truth, and truth is known in the Gospel, which is history, and yet is so without losing the mythical or allegorical significance that it had possessed. Tolkien also notes the necessity of fairy stories. Quote, In God's kingdom, the presence of the greatest does not depress the small. Story, fantasy, still go on and should go on. The Evangelium has not abrogated legends, it has hallowed them. The Christian still has work to do with mind as well as body, to suffer, hope and die. But he may now perceive that all his bents and faculties have a purpose, which can be redeemed. So great is the bounty with which he has been treated, that he may now, perhaps, fairly dare to guess, that in fantasy he may actually assist in the effoliation and multiple enrichment of creation. All tales may come true, and yet, at the last, redeemed, they may be as like and and as unlike the forms that we give them, as man, finally redeemed, will be like and unlike the fallen that we know. Effoliation is a good word. Tolkien recovered a noun from a long unused verb signifying the unfurling of buds in the springtime. In this term, readers of his works should hear echoes of Tolkien's fascination with the creation and cultivation of Middle-earth in the long-faded First Age, and with the sub-creative activity given to the Eldar and to the other elves. At the same time, the word is a quite striking testimony to the power in Tolkien's mind a fairy story also to refoliate the world in the light of the gospel to unfurl the buds of narrative and reason that have grown even in the dark years before the gospel we may glean a little more from Tolkien's letters where we find him commenting on his own writing not as allegory but as what he calls exemplification Exemplification is the creation of a story that is no conscious allegory, each event or character intentionally representing an aspect of another, more primal story, but a story in which many aspects of the one true story, or aspects of true virtue, are simply exemplified. But, importantly, this act of exemplification Tolkien sees as, at its best, an act of homage which directs our attention toward the true myth that is the gospel. In fact, it is not quite right to present sub-creation as entirely an act of the human author's creation. It is also, for Tolkien, an act of discovery that occurs in response to the manner in which the truth presents itself to the mind. Now, all of this may seem to have taken us far from questions of the relationship between the text of Scripture and the Church's formed doctrine, but not so. Consider this question. In what ways have theologians and theological schools been sub-creators, imitating and paying homage to the Scriptures in their theological formulations? In what ways have they undertaken a task of exploring and effoliating the revealed Word, unfolding its depths? Allow me to explore two differences between Tolkien's sub creator and the theologian. I will begin with an obvious difference. Theologians seek to tell the same story, or at least to tell their stories in such a way that we are drawn back toward the one story. But their telling of stories may still be understood as an exercise in exemplification. My talk of theologians telling stories needs a little unpacking. I use the language because of the analogy. More precisely, I refer to the ways in which theologians create particular paths through the symbolic universe of Scripture. The brief discussions of Athanasius and Eusebius that I offered earlier exemplify this creation of paths well. Both theologians are attempting to set out what Scripture teaches, and both create particular paths or modify traditional paths through the scriptural universe. But I could easily illustrate the phenomenon by considering quite different but certainly orthodox Nicene theologians. Exegetical exemplification often produces a plurality of readings and paths through the scriptural universe, even when an identical teaching is being articulated and explored. Such theologians are both giving us what Scripture teaches, and they are exemplifying the story that Scripture tells. They are sub-creating, effoliating Christian thought under scriptural ordinance. So far, however, one might think I have identified only an inevitable hermeneutical action in the attempt to work out what a text means, newness inevitably occurs. But here we find the second difference between Tolkien's sub-creator and the Christian exegete. His sub-creator is able to work because the gospel has licensed and hallowed her enrichment of creation. The theologian's work is, however, a part of the life of the body of Christ. It is an activity drawn out by the Spirit as we are led toward the Father. We most easily speak of the work of the Spirit when we reference the emergence of the creedal and magisterial traditions that should guide our acts of sub-creation. But we need also to recognise the far less perspicacious role of the spirit in generating the theological work within which that defining tradition emerges. The theological sub-creator should know that their work may be part of, intent, of the intended unfolding of Revelation's meaning. Certainty would, of course, here be inappropriate and impossible. But belief that the theological tradition is so ordained reveals the necessity and centrality of the commitments that should be central to theological work. The effoliation of thinking through the exploration of the definable and the speakable fringe of the mystery accessed through the reading of Scripture is a work given us in the event of revelation. I hope my analogy has done enough to suggest a line of argument, even if there remains much to be drawn out. It is time for me to bring this paper to a close. In sum then, Nicene Trinitarianism is in the scriptures, not only in the sense that its judgments are consonant with the judgments that scriptural texts offer, even if those judgments are not the only ones that the text allows, but also in the sense that the Scriptures offer a field of images that in various different constellations have founded a broad variety of Trinitarian theologies. The hiddenness of these theological themes and the work that was required for the Church to draw them out should not make us doubt or fear that there is no connection between doctrine and text. It should make us reconsider and celebrate the work of effoliation, of unfurling the buds of revelation, that is itself part of what has been gifted to us. The drawing out of the written word's meaning under the guidance of the incarnate word's presence in his body is itself a fundamental part of the divine work in Christ. Thank you.
1: Thank you for a really exciting and fun talk. That was delightful. Um, the question I have is, the foliation is a development of the very nature of the tree. And it also is a photosynthesis. There's a purpose involved, feeding the rest of the tree. It strikes me that there's also a sense in which um, uh, there could be cancerous leaves. There could be leaves. On the other hand, there could be leaves that help to nourish the whole tree. So I think that um, perhaps some teleology might be helpful for discussing the nature of uh, this affiliation, and being a great talking
0: with and the Thank you Father, that's a, that's a, that's a very helpful question. I, I think I'd say three things in response, because three is more like God. Um, the, 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 first, the first thing that I'd say is that the unfurling of the buds does not change the nature of the tree um, that's a, sort of a Newmannian response there but quite intentional um, secondly uh, yes you're right Le- some leaves become cancerous some, some do not And that's why I think that any notion which talks about the development of readings in this way uh, has also to talk about the importance of the magisterial tradition as bounding readings. You need both of those together, otherwise you are, to to continue the Newmanian language, you are then just celebrating private judgment. Um, So I think in a Catholic context, there has to be both the celebration of the unfolding as intended, and there must be a sense of the magisterial tradition as guiding, shaping, and in some cases, forbidding readings, which the text certainly warrants. Um, I could give examples, but it will take us too long. Uh, the third thing that uh, I'd like to say is that I agree, in, uh, I agree. now what was the third thing? Ah, oh, yes. Um, I agree entirely that it's, it's really important for us to think about why, theologically, there is such unfurling. It's not enough, I think, to present this as simple hermeneutical inevitability. Um, that, that won't do in a theological context. There has to be a theological reading. And that's where I think, you know, as a patristic scholar, I can point to debates uh, over uh, pneumatology in the late fourth century, where you do find the emergence in such des- disparate figures as Gregory Nazianzen and, and Augustine. Um, of this sense that uh, the truth of the Spirit's divinity is such a deep truth that it takes time for it to unfurl. The way in which uh, the divine has revealed this truth to us is such that it will exercise the mind for us to recognize. Once it's recognized, the Church defines it. But there is a continuing lesson in recognizing this. This is not some accident of history that people were too stupid to spot it, it was that they needed to go through this long process. And I think that part of a theology of revelation is the importance of unfolding because the mind needs to be reformed. And we need to hang on to that if, at a theological level if we are to talk about how we deal with the history of interpretation. So thank you for that very rich question.
1: I'm going to myself to a question. So, Professor Harris, I... Guess I um, agree with so many elements of your paper that I um, I'm not quite sure how to frame the concern. Uh, but there was a famous debate or at least inter- intervention of Kamar's in regards to Ronner's. Because Ronner seems to treat the development of the doctrine of the church potentially almost as if just as the New Testament fulfills or interprets the mm-hmm. Old Testament in ways that were not evident prior. The Church, again, in a certain way, continue to develop the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. Conor responds that there has to be a sense in which, at the close of the apostolic age, the scriptures remain a norm and guarantee of uh, the internal content of Revelation. And the post-apostolic Church looks back to it as measured by scripture and apostolic doctrine. Of course, I agree with you that there's all these ways that, for me, for Eusebius, it could be less evident that what Athanasius is saying is true, or Nicaea, even, is, is grounding the scriptures, and that philosophy interjects, and that there's a complex development of history always ongoing. I just wonder if you have enough criteria for apostolic form as the, the prior content that measures the church's enunciations. Because I'm a little worried that exfoliation is actually the crystallization of the revelation is now happening. After the post age. I, I mean, in some sense, of course, being enunciated, clarifications are happening, but they're always in reference
0: back to the plenary revelation really already delivered. I, I mean, th- this is obviously a really important, this is a, an absolutely central question. I think the first thing that I want to say is that you know, the Rainerian account, and I think most obviously around Chalcedon in the essay. Um, on what's published in English as what is current problems in Christology that's, that's much, that in the German in the 1954 big collection about Chalcedon, I forget the exact title, but it's the one that says Chalcedon end or beginning, whatever. It's much more controversial. Um, the problem there I think with Rana's exegesis is that on the one hand he doesn't really have a way of talking about continuing engagement with the text of scripture. Um, what he's concerned with is the philosophical reinterpretation of the categories within which he thinks Chalcedon operates. So he tends to assume, I think, that the text is at one level and underneath Chalcedon imports all these contexts, the, the, these philosophical concepts from the day, which then can be done away with or redone in the light of you know, nasty readings of Martin. Um, and I think what you've got there is a philosophical reflection on doctrine that's actually unrelated or very tenuously related to the actual text of Scripture. So I can see the huge problems with the way that Rana puts that together because he is assuming that if once there is development, therefore there can be development, and development is primarily driven by philosophical need, therefore it's just endless. So at that level, Congar's, at a theoretical level, Kongar's absolutely right. Um, but I think if you look at Kangar's own explanation of these themes, you see the sorts of tension that uh, is, in my account, that generates the worry that you have that's just there. Uh, in, uh, in the huge work on tradition, Kangar very strongly follows the sort of Blondelian line that tradition at root uh, is the act of handing on in the light of a, the consciousness, the awareness, the faith of Jesus. And it does almost become consciousness. That's not, un, not a slip. Um, awareness of the action of Christ in the church enables interpretation. At the same time, he wants to say, well, yes, of course, there is something that's fixed with the end of the apostolic age. And I think that's a constant tension for Catholic Christians. It's not an unfruitful tension, but it's not a tension that admits of easy solution. I certainly don't think that a consequence or one way of solving that problem is just to say that historical critical reconstructions of what must have happened in the apostolic age will solve the problem. That's not going to work. Um, so I think you have to look at the fairly dense set of ways in which texts do shape and guide readings. Um, and I think that there, it is a dense set, and I'm just sort of alluding to uh, the way in which the words run, the images which use, the complexities which come of attending to multiple texts, the church's magisterial uh, tradition. And, of course, there is a sense in which the sort of transformation of Catholic biblical scholarship in the last 120 years uh, does actually help. Awareness of the complexity of what's going on in the New Testament does help to shape and push readings as well. It's all part of it. But it is a dynamic process. So if we want to say that Revelation is closed with the death of the last apostle, I think that's that's still really important. I take that to be a defined position that we can't retreat from. Um, One of the things that it does is then to, uh, to force us to have an articulate theology of the unfolding of Revelation while reminding us that this only ever is the unfolding, and this isn't a supplementation. There is a constant going back to the text. Um, And what worries me, as I think worried Kongar about Rama's account, is that the going back to the text seems to disappear from view all too easily.